This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to this first Ghost Stories episode of 2024, and who better to do it with than the team from Satrix? And today we have Duma Mkhenge, who is the Business Development Manager at Satrix. Duma, it's been a little while since you did one of these with me. I so enjoyed our chat last time, and it's just really lucky to have you back, actually. So, Happy New Year, and I hope you had a good break. I think you were telling me that you, uh, you went off to the Midlands. So, yeah, thanks for making time, and I'm quite excited to kick off the year with you. No, no, thanks. Thanks for having me again, because I uh, really appreciate the, the invite, and uh, it's an honor to be on your show again. So, it's the end of January, which means anyone listening to this has made it all the way through the 500 days of January, you know, or January, or all of the usual jokes that go around. <laughs> I must say, the shops were absolutely insane this past weekend after payday, so it just shows. I do, I do think that people... People are very, very thin on savings if if they have that by uh, that third week of Jan. And I think the reality is it's more a case of credit cards are maxed out. And, you know, unfortunately, we saw it in Lewis in the results this week. Cash sales were down drastically. Credit sales driving the story. I mean, it just shows you South Africans, as we well know, you know, live out of their credit cards. They really struggle. We know all of the challenges that we face in this country. And the reality is that the January outcome is very much a, a function of choices made in December as well. So I'm just curious to kick off the year, you know, what is your approach to this whole December, January situation? I, I must admit, I mean, it's, it's tough for all of us. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for those who have planned well, you know, for example, I have a friend of mine, you know, uh, he will typically plan for December in March already, you know. And the beautiful thing about that is that, uh, you know, if you want to go on holiday, if you want to buy a package, it's typically, you know, heavily discounted. Um, so that's kind of his hack. But I mean, to have that kind of discipline, it's only a very few people who do, you know. I guess for most of us, you, you kind of have to box clever in a sense that you really need to ask the question, if you want to go on holiday, where should I go on holiday? Or maybe should I just you know, push it out to Jan, you know, when... A, firstly, you know, the, the cost of going there is a little bit more reasonable because you're not competing with everyone else. So those are things people need to really think about when they think about December. But when I think about Jan, you know, as, as, as much as there's a big emphasis around, uh, you know, going back to gym, you know, getting your body back, I think Jan should also be used in a, as an opportunity to actually get in touch with your financial advisor and sort of plan, you know, accordingly for the year. Because, you know, all our experiences uh, are, are different so it's very it'll be difficult for me to say hey you know follow what i do i think you know sitting down with a financial partner understanding your situation looking at permutations uh, and options i think it's the right thing to do especially at the beginning of the year yeah i think that makes an enormous amount of sense and i love that concept of you know thinking about that december holiday earlier in the year if you can do that that's exactly right but i guess the flip side is you've got to say to yourself if you can't do that can you really afford that holiday? And this is the stuff that people don't like to hear. But unfortunately, far too many people are living bonus to bonus. So they basically spend their entire salary every month. And then at the end of the year, they get a bonus and they spend half of that on their holiday and they save the other half and they think that'll do the job. And, and yeah. yeah, There are just w- way too many. There's just way, <laughs> way, way too many stories like <laughs> yeah. that. In fact, there's more stories like that than there are stories of people who are actually you know, sort of uh, spending within their means. Unfortunately, that's how it is. 
and also the pressure, you know, the pressure of the family, you know, of having to go to holiday, the kids want to go on holiday and, and making that work, you know. And so I do sympathize with parents when it comes to that. Yeah, for sure. And I think, look, a, a big proportion of the people listening to the show will be in that typical South African middle class squeeze. You know, it's private school fees or good government school fees. It's private health care. It's private security. You know, you pay tax and then you pay tax again just to live. And it's a, it's a real challenge. And it's not going to get any better, in my opinion. I mean, again, you know, I'll use the Woolworths results as a really good example you see Woolworths food unable to put through pricing increases in line with inflation. Not because they don't want to, it's because they can't. It's because their market can't bear those increases. They'll just walk down the road to check it. So that's the South African middle class. You know, that was traditionally the whole, you know, joking around about walking on Seapoint with a nice coffee and shopping at Woolworths. You know, it's that kind of silly stereotype. And, and, and that's the sort of class of people from an income perspective who are just getting absolutely killed <laughs> by school fees, inflation. I mean, that's my favorite in December, right? Is you think December is coming right and you get the message from the school. You know, don't forget, you've got to pay your January school fees before your kids start school. So that's with your December salary. And the back to school ads as well. <laughs> they come thick and fast. Yeah. 100%. No, 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 the stuff adds up. So I think what you said about, you know, chatting to an advisor, having that plan in place. So the problem is far too many people are just living hand to mouth, right? And it's easy to say you have to get out of that. And, and some people just can't. Obviously, if you're earning so little that, you know, you're not getting enough food, that's a very different problem. But there are also far too many people spending 12 grand a month on a repayment for a shiny car you know, and then struggling to, to make it to the third week of January, you know, then something's wrong. Something's not right. It's insane. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely insane. I, I guess, you know, just looking at uh, 2024, where I think there will be a bit of relief. I don't know how sharp the cuts are going to be, but we are expecting that. I think what has really, you know, shocked the South African consumer has been, you know, the, the marked increase of interest rate in a very short span of time where already you were backed in the corner, but I mean, now it's just unattainable. And to your point, you know, you're seeing that, you know, a lot of the, the, the consumer spend is actually being largely driven by credit sales. And it's also quite surprising, you know, uh, you know which, which banks are actually giving people you know, additional loan credits or line of credits in, in order to actually do these purchases when you consider it in terms of, you know, the macro picture, you know, as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a fascinating conversation with a banking executive last year who said that people will default on their home loans before they will default on their car. <laughs> and I think that, right? Isn't that incredible? That but is. I think it's a couple of things. So number one, I think the assumption is the bank will take longer to kick you out your house than they will to come and, you know, literally West Bank putting your car away that morning. But it, it was also a comment on mobility and how important that is to South Africans because mobility is everything in this country because you just don't have an alternative. So, you know, again, that's a very good example of the kind of cost pressures that come through is if you want to be able to do a job that isn't on the public transport lines, then you need your own car. And then the costs really start to come through. So, yeah, any interest rate cuts will definitely help there. The other thing people get wrong all the time, of course, is they try and blame the South African interest rates, you know, on the South African government. And we're not going to get into any of that in this podcast. It's not appropriate. No, 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 no. I don't know if you've seen the the, the, the numbers from Turkey. I mean, they've just hiked the interest rate by 250 basis point. I mean, the interest rate there is 45%. I mean, we, we don't want that picture. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. No, it's incredible. And unfortunately, the reality is what's happened with interest rates after the pandemic is very little to do with our government and everything to do with the US, right? We're just following the Fed. We have to follow the Fed. 
Uh, Turkey, by the way, that's that's firmly on my list to travel to because it's not often you find somewhere that is pretty and has a worse currency than South Africa. It's a Venn diagram <laughs> that is quite exciting and quite hard to find. So uh, all I think Turkey has got to be on my list. <laughs> no, I think I'm going to follow suit. <laughs> it's clearly the answer. So I think, you know, just moving into some of the other sort of financial concepts that I think we need to cover on this podcast, you know, what is your approach to just debt, I suppose, and just prioritizing what you do with your monthly income. I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't get your personal finance right, you're not going to get your investing journey right. And that's why we've started spending more time on these concepts in some of these Satrix podcasts, because that is the foundation for you having money at the end of the month to actually invest in ETFs. If you don't have that right, then there's going to be nothing left. No, correct. So it's, it's quite interesting you say that, you know, and, and I'm just going back to the whole you know, emphasis of actually having a financial advice, especially at an early age, is that, you know, if you look at your own, let's say, you know, life trajectory, as it were, so in your 20s, you get, you have very low debt, and unless uh, you've got a student loan that you need to service, I, and then it's your first job, and, I, and the first thing I think one needs to learn in their 20s is to actually just get into investment, you know, save as little as 10 rand, or whatever the case may be, you know, specifically investment, not necessarily savings. Then, you know, a person like yourself and myself as well is that, you know, in your 30s, it's primarily the focus has been, it's, it's around debt and savings management, you know, having an emergency f- a fund becomes key. And we've just, you know, illustrated the point as to why it's important, especially for December and January, also managing your debt. Uh, and there are, you know, clever ways of doing that, you know, like, uh, you know, if you've got a, a, a loan in your house, you know, every year you need to shop around, get into that discipline. If you're having difficulties in terms of repayment, be proactive and go to the bank and see if you can actually get uh, a payment holiday, et cetera, et cetera. If that doesn't work, I mean, we all know, you know, you need to cut down on your, on your expenses, do away with the stuff that you don't need in order to service their debt. And for those who are entrepreneurial enough, you know, they can start a business, you know, as a side hustle, as it were, to actually gain, you know, that extra income. Or, you know, you, you shop around in terms of, you know, looking for a new job that pays you more money, et cetera, et cetera. So those are sort of like the permutations in your 30s that you think about in terms of just managing the debt and the savings. But then when you're in your 40s, uh, I guess what is extremely important then is it's, it's wealth building, you know. Only thing that you're actually now really thinking about because your base is a little bit higher. You can contribute more to your retirement fund. You've got probably money as well to sort of invest directly and we can unpack that at a later stage. Uh, that's primarily what you think about, you know, during that 10-year period in your 40s. And that's where I'm at currently. And, you know, I also have a little one that I'm also thinking about, you know. And then your 50s is more about retirement planning. You know, have I retired enough? Is there a shortfall? Uh, am I invested in the right, you know, strategy, et cetera, et cetera? And also, what does the exit look like, you know, in terms of post-retirement? And then your 60s is it's income, you know, transition. So all that part of money that now you save you're kind of now transitioning into products that are actually going to sustain you, you know? And then your 70s, it's all about just making sure that you live within your means you know, in terms of, you know, making sure that you don't lose money. You know, you're always living within your means and, and that money is able to actually carry you for longer. So that's typically, you know, how I sort of, you know, think about all of this uh, situation. There's more, you need to be a little bit more long-term but also you need to be more tactical in terms of where you are in your period. So the interest rate, as we said, will go up, will come down. 
your debt situation may be, you know, quite dire, but there'll be periods where it will improve. As long as you stick to it, then you're quite disciplined in terms of how you think about uh, these different phases of your life. Yeah, I love that concept. It seems the wrong way around, right? We should start rich and poor when we don't need them. You don't need a lot of money if you're just going and playing bowls once a week with your three very old friends. Exactly. But uh, unfortunately, that's not how it works. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's a very accurate view on those different decades in your life. And, and obviously, not everyone will have exactly that experience, but that's pretty close to, I think, what most people will actually have to go through at the end of the day. So it's good. It's good stuff. And I think you're right that that period of having to manage the debt and then start to build wealth, it's a difficult one and it requires a lot of trade-off. And there's a lot of temptation all around you, you know, to actually get the life experiences because you've got to balance off against that stuff, right? You also can't only work and save. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing? You're not living. Your kids are just going to spend your, the money that you didn't spend. I can basically guarantee it. So... <laughs> Tricky, tricky thing, tricky thing to kind of balance. But, you know, one of the other tricks is when you're dealing with the debt, and I think a lot of people have learned this the hard way in the aftermath of the pandemic, is just assume that interest rates can go higher. Yes, it is true that they've probably now peaked for now at least. And, you know, we can't be sure of that, though. There are no guarantees in this world. And the number one way to make sure you don't get into trouble is just just go and put another 2% on that interest rate calculator on any of the websites that do it and just see what that repayment looks like. And imagine a world in which you need to afford that repayment, plus everything else in your life going up a bit because interest rates would only be high if inflation was high. And that, I think, is what people forget. You know, it's not just the interest rate that's gone up. They've gone up because everything else has gone up. So it's everything in your budget is going to be on fire in that situation. And that stress test is worth doing. That, that, that is true. I mean, like you said, I mean, if you, if you can... Um... If you are able to do it, you know, if you can have as little debt as possible, you're actually in a very good situation or position. I've got to actually ask you, Duma, where are you on the rent or buy curve? Because that's a debate that goes on and on and on, right? Should you rent the house you live in or should you buy it? Well, I mean, if I had it my way, I'd be renting for life, right? But, uh, you know, when you have family and they're not in, you know, in asset management or in the financial game, and also when you have parents who are very traditional, you know, they pretty much are proponents of buying a house. So okay, I was kind of forced into it, as you said, you know, life happens, you have to buy a house at some stage. Uh, it's also just a, a sign of you progressing as, as a human being and evolving. But um, if you're looking at the numbers, and you probably have seen the numbers, you, if you had to rent and, and compare that in terms of what you're paying for, let's say, a loan, the rental expense gives you a, probably a better house that you can live in or a property that you can live in than when you actually have to buy one. So it's, unfortunately, it is what it is. I couldn't win that fight. So I'm in the buy game, by, by duress, I suppose. <laughs> yes, a forced purchaser of a house. I think there are yeah, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of people in that, in that category. Yeah, so I'm renting. I, I, I previously bought, and I'm definitely renting forever if I can get away with it. It's just, it's so much easier. So much less hassle, you know, down here in Cape Town, you lie in there in your bed at night and you listen to the wind absolutely hammering those tiles on the roof and you think, you know, that is someone else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a nice feeling. No, no. I mean, to your, to your point around mobility, that's what mental gives you, you know, you can move around uh, to, to great areas. Uh, but I think where people philosophically get, they have an issue with is, hang on, but I'm making the landlord rich. You know, I'm giving money away. And I think that's 
not a great way of looking at it. Because it's what our parents told us, right? Mm. That's what they told us when we were growing up, is if you rent, you're making your landlord rich. It's, it's 100% not true. Yeah. <laughs> but it's what we're taught. Yeah, but then people will cite examples like London, New York, and say, I mean, look how ridiculous these property prices are. Imagine if you, it's always imagine, right? Uh, the back imagine if you had property there, you know, you'd be sitting pretty. Yes. So, yeah, it's not, it's not a, it's not an, it's not a straightforward answer, but yes. I think probably 80% of the time you actually pay off renting. Yeah, I would say so. But then the trick, of course, is you've got to manage your budget that the money you save between renting and buying is money you need to invest. And I think that's where it goes wrong is people go, okay, wait, I can buy and it's 30K a month or I can rent and it's 20K a month. I now have 10K a month left over and I like the new BMW, you know, <laughs> and now we are in massive danger zone because now we are in you know a house is not a good investment but theoretically it shouldn't go down in value i mean they do from time to time but over 10 years you've got to believe that a house is going to at least stick you know whereas a new car is going to halve so and come at a higher interest rate so that's the trick you've got to look at it and say okay great i'm living in you know to your point you can get the equivalent house for much less every month than if you bought it which is the joy of renting but you've got to then take the excess and you have to invest it. You just have to. Otherwise, you're creating a huge problem. Again, it goes back to discipline. You know, so that, that's why I say you have to have a financial. You need, you need someone who's going to keep you accountable to say, oh, I've got this, you know, extra money. What must I do with it? It's like, remember what the plan was, you know. You always have to remind them. I also think that people assume that financial discipline means they won't have nice things. And that's not true. You know, it's like, oh, well, I'll just save and that's invest. Not that's not true at all. You know, like, so your, your friend who thinks about holidays in March, if I had the ability to go and book a holiday for Turkey now for the end of the year, you know, it's going to be so fantastically cheap. And, and, and that's fantastic, you know, and I'm actually saving money by being disciplined and having a great holiday. Same story, you know, I live in a, in a really nice house and I'm very lucky to be able to do that. And it's because, you know, there's, a lot, there's been a lot of discipline before. I'm renting now. I save the excess. It doesn't mean you live like a pauper. It just means you maximize what you can have and you do it responsibly. It's, it's completely different to what people think. It is. No, it is. It is. And, and I think it's just the positioning, right? I think we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about savings, investment, servicing debt. And those things are not tangible per se. I mean, investment, you only get to see the merits of it 10 years down the line. And people just don't, they feel 10 years is too long, you know? And then therefore, whereas, you know, consumption is immediate and people can see it as tangible and, and you can also show off. And so that's the balancing act that, uh, you know, people need to think about it. That does not necessarily mean that you, you, we are saying or promoting a world of, of, of misers. That's not what to say. 100%. That's exactly it. So obviously one of the tools that gets you there is a tax-free savings account. And I think it's quite a misleading name, actually. It should definitely be called, in my opinion, a tax-free investing account. I really think that it just sends the wrong message because savings are things you draw down on when you need them. That's why they are there. A tax-free savings account, the last thing you should ever be doing is withdrawing, right? Yeah, or, or investing in, in a money market account. Yes, exactly, and making your silly little 4 or 5%. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, you probably would have gotten that tax-free no. anyway on interest. So I'll open the floor to you to actually just talk us through tax-free savings, how you think about it, and, and maybe do you, you know, do you agree with me that that is just a misleading name? No, 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 I, I 100% uh, do agree with you. And I mean, I'm, I'm also on the same... Uh, school of thought as you to say this it should be reworded uh, you know tax-free investment account but i also understand you know why they probably have why the national treasury has actually gone with 
as a savings account as opposed to investment is that you're actually trying to encourage first-time investors of savers to actually use the facility or use the account. And the minute you start pulling an investment, it just becomes quite daunting for, you know, for first-time investors. So it's more of an inclusive term, as it were. But once you're in, I'm a big believer that you have to be invested in equities. And, and the reason for it is it has to do with the structure of the tax-free investment account. I'm going to call it that now is that the benefit of, you know, the dividends and the capital gains not being taxed, you get a better outcome from a return perspective when you are invested in equity. And typically from the exercise we've done is that the, the true benefit of you either being invested in a normal account versus a tax-free savings account, you see a marked difference after 10 years. So in the first one or two years, it's much for muchness in terms of whether if I was invested in a normal account versus the, 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 the tax-free savings account, whether I'm going to be better off. That's the first thing. The second thing is what people also need to understand is that when it comes to, let's say, looking at your situation and we're talking about servicing your debt, unfortunately, there would be you know instances where people have to tap into their investments. And we say rather start with your normal account and try by all means not to touch your, your tax-free savings account because you should actually be viewing that as your top up to your retirement fund. And the beautiful thing about this particular structure is that all of those gains are yours. They're all untaxed as, as it were. Now, the minute in between now you start drawing money from your tax-free savings account, you're actually now eating up on the potential compounding, positive compounding effect that you can actually have you know, going forward into the future. So that's how I, I typically think about the structure. And that's also what I think about in terms of the asset class, uh, where to be invested. And I think for me, this is primarily a more of an equity play, both locally and globally. I think right now, a lot of people seem to like the offshore story uh, for two reasons. One is, you know, you need to take a view on the rand versus the dollar. And secondly, you need to also take a view in terms of what you think, uh, you know, international markets will do in the long term. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there and it's really interesting stuff. Before we do that, I do just want to say that people make the mistake all the time of thinking their retirement savings that they are forced to make from their salary will be enough long term. There's kind of this assumption that, you know, some very smart people somewhere have concluded that provided that person puts away X percent of their salary forever, it's all going to be okay. And unfortunately, it's just not true, right? So thinking of a tax-free savings account as a top-up to that is, I think, a nice way to do it because it also gets that long-term thinking in place to say, you know, I've got to put away, what is it, 36 a year? And, you know, it's three grand a month. And that should be in your budget. That should be, you should treat that as an expense, like a debit order. You know, it's gone. That's it. It's out, you know? If that means that, you know, you can't necessarily afford DSTV every month or maybe slightly less of a nice car or whatever, that's, that's what it means for the time being. But it's something that needs to be there. And it's that long-term thinking. Correct. No, correct. No, I 100% agree with you. So I guess it, it, when you say savings, to your point, then people start thinking, hang on, I think this is money that, you know, on rainy day when I have an emergency, I can actually tap into. But if you view it as an investment account, you know, then I, I get the sense that, you know, hopefully people will start, you know, embracing that this is more of a long-term play and it's actually a, a, a complement in terms of what I currently have around you know, uh, saving towards retirement. And there are lots of interesting ways to think about it. And I haven't done the maths around this, but for example, instead of doing a buy-to-let investment where you're going to chip in every month on that bond in the hope that your tenant pays you, and if your tenant doesn't pay you, you're going to chip in a lot. 
you know, that chip in amount is probably more or less that sort of tax-free savings monthly contribution. You go put that into a South African property ETF and you go and earn effectively tax-free rentals. So that means you're buying a whole lot of REITs, real estate investment trusts. They are collecting the rent for you and they are paying it across to you. And that whole structure is set up to be appealing to pension funds who don't pay tax. By using your tax-free savings account, you are turning yourself into a little pension fund. And by the time you've built up your 500k lifetime allowance, I would wager that you will be so much better off than if you tried to just pay off one apartment over time like that. You know, and that's what I do with my tax-free savings account. There's quite a heavy tilt towards property. And then, as you say, offshore, uh, sort of the typical choice there. You know, unfortunately, if you look long-term S&P 500, if it does 8 to 10% in dollars, that works out to 714 billion percent in rand. And uh, it's quite hard to beat that. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost that bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Look, I mean, we can get to the offshore uh, conversation, but you, you, you're right. I think, I guess for you, because you understand listed property and that being, let's say, a substitute for actually buying property and you've been able to actually, you know, make the transition, no, good for you. But a lot of people love the heavy lifting, you know, getting the tenant to pay, doing the fix up or, and, and flipping the property. They get a lot of, let's call it utility from doing that. But if you are just looking at the asset class purely from a return play, you're quite right. You actually better off looking at the listed space and seeing what you can do that in a very clever way. Yeah, it's quite funny. So, I mean, I know a few guys have tried to do the sort of buy to let scenario and they always seem to have a, a war story. Like there's always something, right? Is the kitchen's broken or I've yet, I've yet to meet anyone who genuinely says, you know, geez, I really love managing my property, <laughs> chasing my tenant to pay me. You know, there's, there's nothing I enjoy more than spending my Saturday trying to find a plumber. It's the best. <laughs> it's just, it's hard work. It really is hard work. Uh, I guess, I guess we're all different. We're all different. That we need to embrace, we need to embrace it. 100%. Oh my gosh. I mean, 100%. I like motorsport and that's painful. And I like golf. So, I mean, I suppose I'm one to talk. <laughs> so, uh, Duma, I think let's talk through maybe, you know, last sort of 10 minutes of the podcast, ETF uh, exposure going into 2024. I mean, you kind of touched on offshore versus local. So, I think maybe let's go there a bit. And what are you doing with your money? What are some of your favorite ETFs? You know, what's the strategy for you this year, aside from paying school fees? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, Gross. Um, maybe let's talk about trains last year. The big trains last year in terms of a, you know, listing of new ETFs and also just looking at in terms of where the money was going is we, we saw a lot of uh, feeder fund structure. So basically global ETFs listed on JSE. Or we've also seen that in the unit trust space as well, where guys were actually setting up feeders. And it was partly for two reasons. One is, um, you know, it was a response to Regulation 28, the upping of the offshore limits, uh, I think from 35 to 45. And then secondly, it, it had also had to do with the grey listing, you know. So, you know, moving money offshore or setting up an offshore account, you know, it does now sort of increase in terms of the amount of vetting that needed to be required to be done. So as a response to that, you know, uh, local players have actually brought, you know, offshore products onshore, as it were, so people can actually access them. So that's been an interesting space. And we've seen a variety of strategies around there, you know, where it's global equities, property, uh, bonds, even uh, regional play in, like, you know, Asia and, and the likes. So that was quite interesting. 
just on the offshore piece around returns, we saw that you know the primarily the, the the U.S. market really did well in the second half of the year, so it was quite positive. And also, what aided that was you know the depreciation of the the rand versus the dollar. So if you were invested in offshore strategies, you did well. What was also quite surprising from a re- regional perspective is that India had a very good year last year um, in comparison to China. So a lot of people thought, you know, they can sort of bundle the two countries together, but, you know, they are actually vastly different if you're looking at what's happening in China vis-a-vis what's going on in India, you know. So that was also quite interesting. And then in terms of just uh, local products uh, that have, come to market that we're quite excited about. Firstly was, you know, the announcement of, you know, JSC now allowing, you know, active ETFs uh, to be made available in South Africa. And I think everyone was sort of thinking, what, where should you start, you know? And then our view is if you, where, I guess, active uh, ETFs sort of have a role to play, which is an interesting space, is the fixed income space, you know? And we've seen a lot of market players bringing in income funds. Um, and, and, and that, for me, I think it's quite an interesting proposition at the moment, considering where the interest rates are. So you're getting like equity-like return with, with minimum volatility, um, you know, from, a, from, from, from the movement of the share price. A lot of investors have actually supported that. So that's, for us, quite an interesting space that we've seen. Maybe let me stop there. I'm not sure what your experience has been like. In terms of what you've seen in the market this far, yeah, I mean that all sounds that all sounds about right. That Santa rally in the US at the end of last year was quite something to behold. I mean, some of those individual share price moves among the big tech companies, especially, just absolutely bonkers. They can rip your face off as quickly as they go up. I mean, just go and draw Netflix versus Tesla after the last earnings. It's incredible. And uh, Duma, it's really interesting in the local market. You know, you've touched on the income funds point, and South Africa is that rare beast where often you are actually better off sitting in an income fund rather than in equities. I mean, that's the reality. You know, if you can get 9% or 10%, you're probably beating the JSE in an average year. And you're arguably doing it with less risk, although government bonds, the capital value actually has a lot more risk than people realize. Actually, there's been quite a good Satrix podcast on some of the government bond ETFs. I think it was with SEER. And I would encourage listeners to go back and, and maybe give that a listen because there are a lot of nuances there, obviously. I personally, for broad equity exposure, I do like the US market just because you are getting such exciting companies in there. But you know what's also interesting is I dug through the fact sheets for the S&P 500 tracker, the NASDAQ 100 tracker, and the MSCI world because I needed to write an article on this last week. And of course, the top 10 holdings are really similar, right? Because it's the top 10, it's more or less the top 10 biggest companies in the world. NASDAQ versus S&P, I think there were two companies different you know, and that's about it. And MSCI world is very much like reading a typical old school fan or now Magnificent Seven kind of fund. But then the difference comes in further down, right? It's sort of the long tail of exposure. Obviously, MSCI world is giving you, you know, as the name would suggest, much more global exposure. S&P slash NASDAQ is US markets. And then NASDAQ is more of a tech focus. S&P 500, quite a strong like financial services element and all that kind of thing. So, now, that's the beauty of being able to diversify into these different ETFs, and you can do it with small numbers in each one. Like, that's the magic of ETFs. No, that, that is correct. I mean, the other piece, and I know you're saying a lot of the, there's an overlap across all these different products, but what we also like to emphasize uh, to people, let's use Netflix as an example, is that 
Yes, it's a U.S. entity domiciled in the U.S., but it's a it's a multinational company. So you're getting diversification from multiple countries where they actually do business. So it's not a pure U.S. you know play as as it were. And, and people t- tend to think that you know now you know the U.S. is expensive, uh, which is true. But a lot of these counters are actually also operating outside of of of, of the U.S. And their revenue mix is also well diversified. Yeah, there's also a really fun thing with these tech companies where obviously when the dollar is strong, then as RAND investors, that means the RAND is weak. And so once that share price is put back into RAND, it looks good for us. But what's also quite fun is when the dollar weakens, you know, which occasionally happens, then you have a scenario where, yes, that affects the RAND return. But actually, because these tech companies have got this international client base, they are like a US-based exporter of services. And they have very expensive people in the US and they earn income from, you know, you and I paying our Netflix subscription here. But their cost base is not in South Africa. Their cost base is content creation. It's very US heavy. So you have this interesting situation where most of these tech companies actually like a weaker dollar. In fact, the stronger dollar hurts them. So a weaker dollar is quite nice for them. And yeah, it kind of just really helps from a South African perspective. You know, what you can't do with these tech companies, though, is just go and throw all your money into one of them that has just gone up 20%, you know, and is super overhyped. You know, that's how you hurt yourself. And that's where the ETFs help is they they give you enough diversification that you probably won't really hurt yourself in the process. You'd need a big market sell down as opposed to just buying, you know, Microsoft at the peak. The peak to trough on any of these things can be 30, 40% easily. No, no, you're 100% right. And then people are inclined to sell, right? They panic and they go, oh my goodness, you know, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. The exact wrong thing to do in the market is buy the hype and sell the dip. It's precisely the opposite of what you should do. Or simplistically, which is what people do is that, you know, when there's RAND weakness, they want to send their money offshore. And when they ran strengthened, yes. oh back, it's like, can't teach you it, you know. <laughs> Every time we flirt with 20 to the dollar and then there's a news report somewhere about how 40 rand to the dollar is coming next year and we're all going to live in mud huts and no one will have electricity or water. There will be no roads, you know, and the Springboks won't even be able to win anymore. And then it's panic time. <laughs> Yeah, that's and then you've got to take your money out immediately, immediately you know, at at, the wrong time. at twenty bucks to the dollar. You know, and, and guess what? <laughs> it's, it does not work. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, this is unfortunately this is behavioral finance one oh one. People panic. Yeah. And unfortunately there are a lot of people in the market who profit from panic. And, and so they encourage this behavior. You know, move your money offshore with us. Now is the time to get your money out. You know, buy this product. And and it yeah. Responding to adverts like that, you are probably buying the hype. I can almost guarantee it. I mean, Louis Vuitton released results last week, had a cracker of a day. That thing was up 15% last week. Impressive results. <laughs> right? But you might remember May in 2022, I think it was. Yeah, it would have been. You know, LVMH was all over the headlines. It was just, that's all anyone could talk about. It was the hype stock, the hype sector. And the drawdown from there to where LVMH eventually stopped dropping was severe. So as a newbie investor, you go in and you think, oh, okay, this thing is you know, in the headlines, it's on the front page of this magazine, what can go wrong here? Pile all your money into LVMH and then you sit in with a big drawdown and you bought one of the world's best companies and you just can't understand what's happened to you. And the only way to learn that lesson is to live it, but then live it with a small enough amount that you learn as opposed to bankrupt yourself. That is true. No, that is true. And that's where diversification is so key. And, and, and again, I mean, we've, we've had this discussion before, is that the beautiful thing about ETFs, it gives you access. 
you don't really need to delve deep into you know individual stocks just to understand the portfolio in terms of how it's being constructed and what sort of exposure it's giving you so like you said i mean if you're interested in certain markets and you want to get exposure to you can do that we've just spoken about you know the the currency play as well is that you also need to just understand when it's the right time for you to actually invest offshore and that's when the rent is actually strong um, so once you have a feel of that, then the next step is to start looking at individual shares because there will be certain shares that you sort of want to learn more about. And I think you, you first need to learn and understand the company before you can actually invest in them. Absolutely. I, I suppose that brings me to, uh, well, I've got two more questions actually, but I'm going to skip to the last one and then I'll, and then I'll ask, you, ask you a fun one to finish. I can't remember if you do dabble in single stocks or do you just stick to ETFs? Uh, I used to, then I got my fingers burnt. I mean, at the moment now, I'm just building a position on, 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 on ETFs that I'm comfortable with. And then what I'll typically do, this is now on my normal account, is that you know, I'll take some of those proceeds and actually that's the next step I want to do, invest in single stocks. And what you're seeing now in the SA market is, you know, SA is looking cheap. It's looking quite interesting. And the sort of universe I'm sort of, looking to dabble into it's, it's more your mid cap and your large cap you know accounters yeah dabbling in single stocks i always think is what makes investing a little bit more fun and when something is fun it encourages people to actually do more of it which is you know it's, it's a good hobby it's a hobby that pays at worst it loses you a little bit of money which is still a lot cheaper than any other hobby i can really think of there aren't many most hobbies lose you 100 percent of the money that you <laughs> include in there sure. <laughs> so yeah and sometimes more so it's, it's, it is good to dabble in them. And I, I think ETF should be the base of any portfolio and some single stocks. You know, it's almost like the sprinkling on the popcorn. That's the way to, to think about it. To think about it. No, no, I agree. I mean, there would be an opportunity that's like once in a lifetime when you're like, geez, I want to really take a, a big position on. But yeah, Sasol 2020. Uh, we always go there. Or, 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 or mutual at six rand, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Tungela when it unbundled. No, exactly. These things are rare. They're very rare. Uh, but they do happen. They, they do, happen. do happen. They do happen, yeah. Do my last question. Which ETF do you wish existed on the local market, but it isn't available yet? Or maybe the index doesn't exist. You know, what tracker do you wish was there for you to put your money into and why? I guess like like any person that's interested in investment, they, they wish list is as follows. I'm looking for long-term equity-like returns, but with cash-like risk, you know. If, if, if someone can come up with a product like that, that is low cost, easy to understand, I think you will make a tons of money. I think at the moment, something that is quite similar, but it has to do with where we are in the cycle, are the income funds. I think that's the, like the closest thing uh, that sort of touches on that, you know. But that's, for me, the ideal product if, if someone had to actually come up with a product of that nature. But unfortunately, I don't think it's possible, you know, with the underlying asset classes to construct something like that yeah, the, consistently. The structured products try to do elements of that, right? They'll try to take out a risk here or a risk there. And it is, it's expensive. It's, it's interesting. And you've got to really understand that stuff, you know, and I have done some podcasts before in that space that listeners can go and check out. And, you know, they're, they're interesting. They are interesting and complicated. And uh, you've got to really know what you're doing with that kind of stuff for sure. I think for me... And they're not liquid. That's the other Yeah, thing. they're not liquid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, you've got to ask nicely for a liquidity event because you're actually locked in for a period. That's part of how they engineer those outcomes. You're spot on. I think for me, the index that I wish exists is just a proper retail index on the JSE because that industrials index is just too broad. It's just way too broad. I, I, I think I joked on a podcast with Nico that it's like the Poloni of the market. It's all the leftovers just tossed into one. Yeah, it's other. You know, it is other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it means you can't yeah. pure play load shedding. 
So, you know, a really nice way to play load shedding and consumer would be obviously a retail index. And the JC has got probably 10 great retail stocks and yet there's no index. I never thought about that. So what would it be? Would it be uh, what? Uh, clothing retailers, food retailers? Yeah, all the clothing, all, all the grocery, you know, and then some of the other one or two like Lewis or whatever the case may be would be a really interesting and very fun ETF to trade, I think, because, you know, that's super volatile, right? I mean, that stuff, it, it's interest rates and it's macro and it's load shedding and it's its its all the things, right? It's very much this B2C strategy. Mm, mm. I think that would be an extremely fun ETF. And if someone from the JSC is listening, I really wish you had a retail index and that is all from me. Okay, that's interesting. So make it happen, Duma. Come on. Something to think about. Yeah, yeah. Go, and, go and whisper in the right ears up there in Joburg. <laughs> so so, so I, take, I take it your position around load shedding is that in the medium to long term, it'll be thing of the past. Oh, jeez. Look, I've got to tell you, I am, I am quite <laughs> bearish on South African consumers. I don't want to be. I desperately don't want to be. But then I go and read something like that Lewis update where cash sales are down so heavily. And I just think, jeez, you know, it is. It is so hectic out there. I'm very much, you know, single stocks you can do really well on the JSE. I'm a little bit more skeptical of broad exposure just because you've got to look at the economy around you, you know, and realize that the only way you're really growing in this place is if you're winning market share. It's not because you've got the systemic business that's growing with the broader markets. I mean, you just have to look at banks over like 10 years to kind of see that, you know, and look at what ShopRite has achieved by winning market share in that space. So, South African consumers as a whole, you know, incredibly volatile. I mean, look how well the clothing retailers seem to have done over the festive season. You know, they've had a wonderful rally, although I must say digging into some of those results, I'm not really sure what the market is seeing, but I mean, we'll see how that, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, it's, it would just be a, it would just be an interesting index. You know, when that level six load shedding announcement comes out, you just know you can hit sell on that thing almost yeah, immediately. Yeah. Okay, close and, your eyes. <laughs> yeah. And so you could probably hit buy on it actually heading up to elections because chances are quite good that load shedding will be minimized. You know, it's going to be like when the Springboks won. The next day, it's going to be stage six. You know, maybe I'm too bearish, but I suppose we'll see. Anyway, the product doesn't exist. So we can probably leave it there. It's been a really great show. Lots of personal finance stuff, lots of fun investing stuff. Thank you so much for your time. It's always so nice to have you on here. And uh, good luck with the back to school, the start of the year and, and all the expenses that come with that. No, thanks guys for having me. That's been a great... Uh, podcast in the show I really thoroughly enjoyed it and yeah let's let's hope uh, 2024 is a strong year for all of us yeah let's hope so Duma thank you so much for your time it's a pleasure ciao